a script is what takes you out of that mindset, takes you away from this concept of experiential sales in the first place. Every, every single call should have a uniqueness to it. That consistency is important, but uniqueness is what will cause the person on the other end to hear you better. And it will allow you to actively listen a lot better as well too, because the buyer will actually talk in the first place, even if they're, they're emotionally, you know, riled up and they're giving you a little bit of a negative response if they're talking they're being sold welcome to outside sales talk where we meet with industry experts to learn the strategies and tactics that make them successful i'm your host steve benson and i've helped thousands of salespeople all over the world crush their quota today i'll help you crush yours Welcome back to Outside Sales Talk. Today I have Dale Dupree with me, and we're going to talk about creating a killer sales playbook, something we all need to do. Dale, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. But, and Dale is the legendary copier warrior and the founder of The Sales Rebellion. He also is the host of the Selling Local podcast. Um. To jump right into it, Dale, uh, sales playbooks are really important for any field sales team. Could you just take a step back and explain what's in a sales playbook? What is it? What, what benefits does it provide for field salespeople? Give us the overview. What's interesting about the, the, the statement and even the question that, that you're asking as well, too, is that especially in my career now, I sold copiers for 13 years is that even though they are it's extremely important to have a playbook that most people have it up in their head that it's not really written down and that they're not really teaching it strategically from the perspective of this is a system or a process but more more than anything it's it's this concept of are you prospecting well if you're not prospecting then nobody's going in your funnel is your funnel not full then you should get back to prospecting it's just this this kind of dumbed down concept at the end of the day and, and no hate to anybody out there that's doing it that way. But when I was coming up in, in my career, I thought to myself, well, the thing is, is that how do you hold yourself accountable to this, this whole process? And also how do you evolve it into something that complements the buyer and that becomes more community minded and less sales centric? Because if we're just focusing as salespeople, if we're just focusing on nothing, but what it is that we want, then we become commission hungry. And as my friend Larry Levine likes to say, we get commission breath. And the prospect or the buyer can smell that on us from a mile away. And I think that even most salespeople can smell it on themselves in most cases as well too. You know, you can get out of a, a meeting or out of a, 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 off a cold call and say to yourself, man, I am definitely going for the kill on this one pretty hardcore. Whereas a system and a process can slow you down a little bit. And it can, it can help you to kind of be in the moment with the prospect. And when you get a stupid objection, instead of thinking that was stupid and let me crush you, that you can be patient with the buyer and meet them where they're at and not have to worry so much about your quota, not have to worry so much about filling the top of the funnel, but, but you know, instead focusing on the things that are truly going to create long-term success. That's what a process and a system has in it. And, it. and it's not just about prospecting and it's not just about the funnel. It's about the experiential sales pieces that go together with that as well too. What are you doing in between those things? What kind of communications are you having with your prospect? And if you don't have a system around these types of things, then you're just going to, you're going to kind of like wing it or, or say to yourself, well, it worked the last time for the last girl that I was trying to sell something to. Why isn't it working for this guy? You know, well, because it's a different vertical or it's a different company. And so that means there's a different human. 
on the other end of it, different personality, different style of buying in the first place. So you have to take these things into account. Absolutely. Well, if you're a sales leader, um, how do you approach making a sales playbook? Where, what's think, the thought process behind it? What are the, what are the key elements that are in every sales playbook? Where, where do you start? A sales playbook for me is, it starts with, as a leader, it starts with what, what worked for you, like writing those things out and, and visualizing them, but not teaching them to your reps the same way. And one of the things that I found to be super consistent and very successful as well too in my positions of uh, VP status and management was if I went to my people and I said, hey, you got to do it like this or, uh, you know, here's how you run this particular part of the sales cycle or this is how you have to sound on a cold call or what you need to say during outreach, that typically they would fail, just straight up fail. And so the concept is, is how can you make a system and put together a playbook that not only has the elements of what it was that was successful for you, but how do you, how can your people look at it and make it their own? And so that, I think that that's the big key to the whole puzzle is having an outline system of this is what the process looks like. And for the rebellion, we call it the rebel invasion and invasion is an acronym. And essentially inside of that, that's our, that's our simple process when we have, when we've qualified a candidate and we're working them toward a sales cycle specifically, just as you know, one of the pieces of the puzzle of a playbook. And when you go through those particular, the, the outline of the sales cycle itself, to sit back and say, all right, so Dan over here, he's more of an introvert, right? How is he going to handle the system compared to Chelsea over here who's super extroverted, right? What are the strengths and weaknesses here? How can I complement these things? In the name of the buyer, though, more than anything, not just the reps. Because when you empower the rep, then the buyer becomes more in tune with the sales cycle in general. So it's about complimenting them at the end of the day. Um, tell me about buyer personas. What are your tips for creating buyer personas um, or ideal prof customer profiles? Uh, you hear that term thrown around a lot, ICPs. Um, what are the tips for figuring out who, who the best people to sell to are for your sales playbook and how do you, how do you write that part of the book? I think, I think for the most part, if you're a startup specifically, you know, going out and interviewing your marketplace instead of trying to go out and sell them something like to go out to, to your marketplace and basically sit with folks and say, Hey, this is the kind of product that we're developing and trying to put together from a sales perspective as, as an organization that I'm, that I, you know, I'm starting you know, however you want to word that to somebody and ask them, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Cause we think it would work great in the insurance industry, but what do you think? And by starting with the product itself, you actually build a better buyer. You, you build a better ICP from the perspective of that person. You, then you can learn about their, their personality traits. You can learn about the proper positions inside of the firm that would make the right decisions on that. But if you just started even with the front desk, it works. You know, so let me give you a crazy example. When I was selling copy machines, right, that had been out since the 60s, 50s at this point, right, in that range, you know, where they were being used commercially to some extent. And longer than that, I mean, the, the printing press has been around for quite some time. Shout out to the printing, the founders of the printing, or the creators of the printing press back when it was innovative. Now it's just, it's like everybody, when they look at a printing press or a copier, they're like, those things still exist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet it was really cool when they first made one, but, but Imagine that instead of going around and saying, all right, cool. So these are the types of people that buy the product, you know, historically based on what I'm looking at inside of my organization. And instead I started to say, well, why aren't these people on the list? 
and going out and talking to them and, and saying, Hey, you know, what do you guys do for printing internally here? And finding out in a lot of, in a, a lot of, a lot of the case would be that it was perception that ruled these types of things. So a lot of times when we create an ICP or a buyer persona or an avatar, that's another popular one these days is creating an avatar is that we usually use assumptions. And instead of assuming, you know, get it from the horse's mouth directly and understand what it is specifically that they want, that they desire, and that you're trying to sell them, you know, in regards to the fit and how it is that you're going to be able to a accommodate and, and complement what it is that they want, but b also understanding the cast of characters inside of the organization. You know, we call it the crew inside of the rebellion. You know, we're basically a lot of times too. One of the things that we forget is that we just try to qualify the business. We sit back and say, "Cool, it's this vertical." So, you know, here's a process that we can even understand by just using the internet these days. Because a lot of the time, and I'm just going to be point blank about this because I'm a millennial. You can do a lot of this crap on the internet. You truly can. And so you don't necessarily have to speak with people face to face. The only reason I encourage it because as a millennial, I believe that a lot of sale uh, processes have been disconnected from the buyer entirely. And people don't want that, you know, as much as it's nice to just like hit a button and get a Big Mac, right? Like it's not cool at the same time too, because we're not wired that way as humans in general, even introverts need somebody. <laughs> so bigger picture perspective around it. Yeah. I was just uh, hearing someone say, Oh, I think field sales going is going away after COVID. And I'm like, no, it's not because we're still humans and we like to, we, we, we engage with one another face to face. And if, if we don't sales cycles will be longer your competitors will engage face to face and you'll lose deals. Uh, relationships are built that way. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more that uh, you can do a lot of research online. You can go through a lot of sales steps online your and every customer will research your company with the internet. But I, I believe that deals are closed face to face or, or, or because of that face to face relationship that you've built over time. Truth. In a lot of industries. I mean, if you're, selling a, a commodity product and they can just buy it on Amazon, then that's probably where they're going to buy it. But um, for a lot of things, it's more complex than that. Agreed. Well, um, dude, you can buy a copy machine on Amazon. And I so, sold, you know, hundreds and hundreds of units year over year. And, you know, millions of dollars worth of revenue every year. And, you know, so sitting back and saying that somehow people don't matter inside of a sales cycle is absolutely ridiculous. It's disconnected entirely it's it's people that want a shortcut that they would rather start to like dig it into your brain that they don't need you anymore and it's also the concept of like the people that are out there that just live in self-doubt like it's a lonely place where y'all live i'm sorry about that but you know come join us over here in abundance and start taking an attitude of understanding that your perseverance and your mindset are what create an outcome in the first place not the internet absolutely and you know another thing i love that you said um uh, about creating buyer personas and, and how when you attacked the market, you didn't just take the buyer personas that were originally in the playbook, but you started thinking outside the box and asking who else should be, you know, who else should I be going after? Who, who, who isn't here and why aren't they here? That doesn't make any sense. I think in times of economic uh, crisis or challenge that like we, like we have here in uh, the, uh, the early 2020s here, um, <laughs> we'll see how long they last, but certainly now it's May of uh, 2020s. So we're certainly in the thick of it, but uh, you know, 
rethinking who your ideal customer profiles are in a time of crisis is one of the first things you should do and think, hey, what's changed? Who's out there that needs this now? Who needs more of it because of this? Who needs less of it? Who belongs in this list? Who's not here? Who's on this list that shouldn't be here anymore? Whether, whether, you're, whether you're, uh, your playbook is in your head or written down, it's time to rethink some of those things or, you know, around the buyer persona. Agreed. Um, what about sales scripts? You, you, you were concerned about people uh, kind of losing, lose, not, not being successful if you wrote too much down and, and made it too uh, prescriptive. What types, how far should you go in terms of sales scripts? What should be in a playbook? Um, and, and, and how can a salesperson use a script without sounding scripted? <laughs> That's a great question, right? I love that question. So we like mindset scripts because the thought of uh, around what it is that you're doing every time you pick up the phone is based on an attitude more than anything, more so than a product, because it's about timing. Anybody in sales knows that. And anybody that wants to deny it is just out of their minds. Sales is about timing at the end of the day. It, if you are not there at the right place at the right time, they're most likely going to say no. And so taking that as the core foundation behind what it is that we're trying to create as salespeople in the first place, we need to understand that if the buyer doesn't have a contract that's up right now or they're not experiencing problems and pains that would cause them to say, yeah, dude, you came at the right time. Come and talk to me then you have to do something different to the buyer. You can't use the same script that would get them to open up to that type of meeting inside of that weak moment. Instead, you have to do things like cause curiosity, right? Undeniable curiosity, create emotional context around the dial itself as well too, and give the prospect an emotional option instead of just a logical one. Because the logical one will say, I'm in a contract for three more years, I don't need to talk to you. But if you can create that fear of missing out with them, during the sales call, then they're going to say, I shouldn't, I probably shouldn't let this fish go, you know, because if I throw it back, I might never see it again. You know, and not to say that that's, that's what every buyer thinks by any means, because they also want you to chase them. They love that part about the, the cycle as it is. And that, and being honest and raw about those kinds of things, I think is important as well too. But, you know, a script is what takes you out of that mindset, takes you away from this concept of experiential sales in the first place. Every, every single call should have a uniqueness to it. That consistency is important, but uniqueness is what will cause the person on the other end to hear you better. And it will allow you to actively listen a lot better as well too, because the buyer will actually talk in the first place, even if they're, they're emotionally, you know, riled up and they're giving you a little bit of a negative response if they're talking they're being sold that makes a ton of sense yeah and, and i think I, I see people over script things a lot and then you know judge their reps based on whether the script was followed verbatim and i think you 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 lose a lot of uh, so much of the human touch of sales and and just the human experience that that rep that buyers want when when you do that um that being said i can see much more use for a script in like a cold call than an actual sales call i think the the further down the line towards a sale that you are the more creative the reps need to be able to get and frankly the more experienced those reps are compared to the, the reps that are dealing with things earlier in the cycle mm -hmm. agreed how 
I guess that brings brings us to another question. What, how in depth should the sales process be documented in these in these sales playbooks? I mean, what should be scripted? What should be free? What what has to happen? What what shouldn't be asked? Yeah. So the word aptitude is what comes to mind. The natural ability to be able to do something. Well, guess what? There's a thing known as gained aptitude, and so it's the concept of throughout the process of learning and and understanding your buyer better and and going through the motions and and assessing you know the knowledge that you need over time and and also storing the knowledge needed over time that when you come to a similar situation that you'll know how to get through this because it's happened to you before think about it like this you you go through an, an awesome sales cycle you get toward the end of it the buyer's giving you a thumbs up to sign the, the paperwork you take the paperwork and there's something on it they don't like and they, and they say, what's this, right? Well, it's that one thing that your boss always told you not to tell them about anyway. <laughs> Don't tell them about this because they might have questions and it might stall the deal. Well, it just did anyway because they found it. You know, and I can tell that story more times than I can count. Shout out to my bosses. But the idea, <laughs> the, the idea was is that what I started learning was being proactive instead of reactive inside of these processes was massive. And so my gained aptitude was is that naturally – because of the things that happened to me that were failures, I was able to, I'm able to every single time I'm in a sales cycle say, I'm not going to do this because I know what happens 99.9% of the time. Even if it, if it happens in a different place inside of the sale, you know, sporadically throughout any instance of it, I'm not going to deal with it in the first place because it's not fair to me and it's not fair to the buyer. You know, so, so I would say that it is important to document the journey with every single person. And always be building on your sales process to some capacity. You know, when, when, when Jeff goes through this issue over here with this buyer in a very popular vertical that you were serving and no one's ever experienced it before, you better tell everybody else about what happened. Because if it ever happens again, you know, the six weeks that he spent cleaning it up, you're going to have it, you know, with this other rep. And, the, and the, the thing about that too is that what top reps deserve and what all reps deserve, but what top reps need more than anything is they need to constantly be fed, you know, from the perspective of what's next, right? They will, top reps are typically hunters better than anything else, hunters and closers, right? But there's those middle, all the things in the middle processing the paperwork, every rep that's listening right now, that's a top reps like, yeah, I have somebody that does that for me. You know, so having, having, those things documented is important because we want to stop reps. We want to focus on the things we're good at. Right. But at the same time too, again, all reps need that kind of information and knowledge because that's how they get to become a top rep as well. So if you got a bunch of C players, a really nice sales system and process will enable them. They don't have to always be C players. I hear it from leaders all the time though, bro, where they, they, they will constantly say to me specifically, yeah, you know, don't put a whole lot of, time in on this one you know because because they're just not going to get a lot of what it is that you're teaching anyway because of this this and this they've been judged they've been labeled they've been stamped right but really it's they've not been led is the problem and and so a system that has a a, a myriad of different bullet points inside of it through gained aptitude will allow other somebody else to gain knowledge vicariously through your experiences Absolutely. And what, what sorts of resources are there? What, what's in, what are you including in a sales playbook from a resource perspective? When, when you say resources, are you, 
are we talking about software? Are we talking? Are we talking about specs on hardware? You know, like how detailed do you want me to get on that? I mean, I, I guess depending on what you're selling and you're building, so it, you're building out your sales playbook. What things are you including in that sales playbook to make your to give your reps help them build that aptitude you're talking about? How do you? Yeah, well, let's go to let's go to prospecting instead of kind of like going through the whole thing. Let's go narrow down on one of them. Let's go to prospecting. So if you have a rep make a hundred calls and he gets ten results from those calls, to sit down and to scrutinize that and to say why did this happen? How did it happen? You know, if it's good, if it's usually two. How did you get 10, right? <laughs> you know, sitting down and understanding better what that looks like and being able to say, well, I had these types of conversations. I called it this particular time. Data is so important in general inside of the way that, that a sales cycle works in the first place. And so kind of having every metric and every little piece of data that you possibly can is not, it might be a little sticky in the beginning, but it pays off in the long run because we can, we can have a statistic around these things, you know? And so, so when it comes to, to the resources themselves, I would, I would be, specifically i would have inside of a playbook all the little things that somebody can do if you're on linkedin these things work really well right if you're if you're face to face you know door to door with somebody you know pulling pulling on handles and and meeting the front desk first before you meet anybody else 90% of the time this is something that helps to soften them extremely well and then you know essentially routing and mapping that What's next? You know, it just like a sequence, but inside of your actual calls themselves. And if you have resources available to you to understand that this is the kind of thing that typically happens in a cold call, even specifically, because look, most of the people that are listening right now are probably like, that's all in my head, you know, from my own experiences. How the hell am I going to learn from your experiences if you don't write them down in the first place? Yeah, that's one of my biggest thoughts on creating a great sales playbook is it it almost has to be written mostly by the reps you it has to be they have to be able to add to it because so much of the the information and knowledge in your in your sales team and in the organization is floating around in people's heads it's the small things they do and so as a manager if you're you know on a ride along and out in the field with your rep and you see them doing something awesome get them to put that into the playbook, get them to teach everyone else for, you know, even if it's just a five minute conversation during one of your group meetings or standups, you know, have them teach that thing they did great and point it out in the playbook. I think, uh, I think that can be really powerful. Mm. Agreed. What, what, uh, what about practicing? How important is it the field salespeople practice what they learn in their co company's playbook and how, how can they go about doing that? What would you recommend? They should also, they shouldn't just be practicing what's in the playbook. They should be constantly building the playbook year after year, month after month, quarter after quarter. They truly should. Imagine being 20 years in and you're still doing the same thing. What's the definition of insanity, right? And I ask that every single time that we talk about time in regards to what should sales reps be doing from the perspective of progressing their narrative. You know, because if you're 20, 25 years in and you've been doing the same thing over and over again, all of a sudden I show you three things and you're, and you say to your, you think to yourself, I wish I'd have known these 10 years ago because now I'm, I'm lost and I'm, I'm, I've got 25 accounts that I've been farming for the last 10 years and they've kept me safe. Right. And now I have uncertainty because of COVID-19 and nine of them have gone out of business and I've got to add net new to the, to the market or inside of my actual myth. 
right? Or, you know, my ownership inside of, we called it a myth in copiers. Look at me reverting back to my old days. You got me, you got me nerding out over here, bro. But the, again, the idea of being able to say that practice makes perfect is, is the, is the best answer to what you're saying specifically, because we're as salespeople, especially even the top rep is never perfect. We can always be learning and we've got to be adapting year after year after year. You know, we've got technology coming out right now inside of our own systems that people have never seen before. People have never used inside of cold calling before. We're going to try and lead the charge on it more than anything. But, and I'm not saying that people should be doing that, but you know, using, even using direct mail pieces like we do at the, at the rebellion, like our, our rebel letter campaign, which is a five letter sequence that we drop off. That it's a pattern interrupt and it's a curiosity sparkler. And the idea of it is that, you know, by understanding that nobody's using direct mail right now to get into the, to, uh, to the decision maker or taking tangible, as we like to call them market tools. But I like to think of them as props, you know, like imagine going to Disney <laughs> and like going through the queue then they get into the ride. And like the whole experience is just mind boggling because there's a tangible presence everywhere you go in sales. There's none of that. It's, it is verbal, right. And audible, right. That that's it. You know, like that's really it. There's no imagination involved. You hand a brochure and it looks confusing and hieroglyphic, you know, laden because you, you don't know what you're looking at. You're just looking for the price the whole time as the buyer, right? And, and because of those boring and stale and stagnant pieces, if we're not practicing and we're not getting better or we're not continuing to innovate, we're just going to suck at some point. It doesn't matter how good we are. And, and to me, like, that's the one thing I always feared is becoming irrelevant, like to myself. Because, because that's what it is. Like at some point, like you don't even know how to better your own walk. <laughs> that's a scary thought. Absolutely. Uh, you know, as a, as a manager, it can be hard to actually get people to engage with things like a sales pl playbook. I've, I've seen them written and hardly glanced through for, you know, five minutes per rep, maybe. How, how do you, if you, if you invest a lot to capture a ton of great knowledge into a sales playbook as, as an organization and you spearheaded it as a manager or a leader of a sales team, how do you make sure that the sales reps actually use it? How do you make sure they actually get out of it what you were hoping they would get out of it? That's what culture is for. Like building a culture of follow through for your reps and, and progressively working on different types of personalities that doesn't necessarily accommodate that thought <laughs> while also understanding that the people that, that are open to that type of concept, that they're the ones that also have to be helpful in setting the example. It can't be the boss saying every morning on Monday, who's going through our mantra and looking through our playbook and, and adding to it and learning new things and practicing. It can't just be the boss. It has to be the reps as well. They have to make a decision. So reps listening have to decide for themselves as well too. It's not just up to the, to the boss. It's a commitment, you know? And so, but building a culture that has a foundation around these things is important as the boss, because when somebody comes into the organization, they should just be prepared that these are the types of things we do here that, you know, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be clockwork with everything either. It can be a little abstract. You can make it a little bit less strenuous from that perspective. And some people like it that way. Others are more militant. Right. And so let those people be militant about it. Like give them their own little way routines around using these things. Adapt to your people though. But if, if your culture sucks and it's just, if your culture is reactive, like at the end of the month going, 
so who read the handbook this week? You know, it doesn't work. Like right? that, that's the kind of culture that nobody wants to be in anymore, but everybody's super quiet about it because they're also the ones that are making the most money in most cases. So everybody's afraid that that kind of thing will be taken from them, but their happiness is what's more important. And they're living in literal sorrow, you know, on a daily basis, unhappy, going and filling out job applications like every six months and then not telling anybody about it. Right. You know, like that's the literal life of a sales rep that lives in a culture like that. Absolutely. Well, it can be a, a stressful career, right? I mean, sales, sales is, is, a, is, is a really hard career. I, I've, I've heard you talk about um, a sales therapy and sales therapists inside of the rebellion. Um, how, how, can, how can a sales therapist, what is it, first of all, and, and uh, how can they help a salesperson cope with stress? Yeah, we, this is actually a shout out to Adam Snyder, who's one of my coaches, who he, he was talking about being counselors inside of the sales rebellion. And I just thought, oh, therapist, that's perfect. And, and so we, yeah, we do, we coined the phrase because the other thing is, is that I'm somebody that has hardcore struggled with depression and not just in my sales walk, like throughout my life and my sales walk actually accentuated it. I mean, it made it even worse. And, and it, it took me to even darker places than I ever knew that I could go from all the rejection and the turmoil, the cultures that do suck, you know, they, they, eat at you they start to get you to a place that you can't come back from and so we believe in the sales therapy concept because listen there there are people out there that are afraid to admit this kind of thing and i'm gonna tell you right now so was i even after i tried to commit suicide while i was working and making a lot of money and living a very nice lifestyle i kept it a secret and then my dad died and after my dad died and I lost everything, I realized how important it is to be open about these things because, it, you know, that's important life more so than anything else. And, and if we sit back and try to say that somehow business is business and it's not personal, you're lying to yourself every single day. The money you make is yours, right? Yours personally, <laughs> the, the customers that you gain, that's from your hard work, right? Not the business, yours personally. You know, so taking ownership in those things, it makes it easier to talk to somebody, you know, with the title of sales therapist as well, too. You know, because listen, like we're a bunch of tatted up dudes that come from, you know, hardcore backgrounds. Most of us inside of the sales rebellion, like I played in a metal band and toured all over the United States. You know, we've got guys that have been to prison, you know, federally. And, and, but the thing is, is that we, we understand their backgrounds are what define their outcomes more than anything that they've made the choices in their life to be able to come to, you know, to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, number one. And secondly, to be able to come to their community and say, Hey, you know, we messed up. Right. And this happens to people. Let us help you. Right. Let us tell you our stories. Right. You know, the guys that, that look like they would be like shoving a knife down your throat, <laughs> you know, saying these things, crying with you. Right. And being empathetic toward your situation. Like we need more of that because we as men have been have been raised the incorrect way through society. You know, we are we are supposed to be leaders. I do believe that wholeheartedly, but so can women can be leaders just the same. And men have a unique form of leadership, but we take it to the nth degree where we hide all these things and we try to swipe them under the rug and for, pretend like they don't exist and forget about them in the first place. That, my friend, is inauthentic. And that's what causes failure. And how can a leader of a sales team encourage the people 
on their team to talk more about their feelings and therefore become more successful in sales? You know, I think the one thing that is it that it has to be discussed more often in the first place is the idea that sales leaders aren't always going to be the best. The leader of the team isn't always going to be the best person for the rep to talk to, you know, that, that expressing to the reps to be, to, to be more vocal about how they feel, but if they, but if they feel more comfortable doing it with somebody else inside of the organization, you know, having an outlet like that is extremely important because a lot of times it's hard for the rep to, to open up to their leader because they think I'm going to get fired if I do that. You know, so over time you've got to earn that trust and credibility. So you have to, you have to also be able to tell how you feel and not just that I'm pissed off because you guys didn't hit your number this month, you know, like really tell how you feel what's going on. Right. And because that's a huge piece of the puzzle. I worked with a man that he came to me one day and, and, and just leveled with me and said, I, I struggle with depression. Like I, I take medication. I go to see, I see a therapist and then he told me what happened to him. And man, it, it broke me. It broke my heart more than anything, but it broke me. And I thought to myself, imagine if he could be this vulnerable with everyone that he could probably change the world, quite frankly, in the way that he was able to, to articulate it to me. But then for the most part that that's seen as a weakness in people, right? That's seen as something that's not favorable. And he was a leader inside of my organization, right? And, and so my respect for him, you know, I pray for that man every day since that moment because I, I have a new understanding of his walk and what it is that defines him. And it encourages me to be better in my life as well too. And it encourages me to be open and not to be afraid of those things because it honors him as well by doing that, by taking that learned experience like we just talked about and being able to practice it myself. Yeah, it's so important to, as a leader to be authentic and be vulnerable and communicate your feelings and, and not just the not just the the bullshit as you were saying, you know, the, the, I'm angry, not just anger. I'm angry that you didn't get you hit your numbers this month, but actual real stuff. And I think that, that, that can go a really long way with employees and uh, trust and building it with them and, and, uh, and making them feel like they can be comfortable um, expressing their true selves and, and their feelings, which is going to help the organ, the whole organization be stronger, really. Right. Well, you, you were you were selling copiers during the swine flu, and uh, you bounced back strong. Um, what did you learn from that experience that could uh, that could help us uh, in, in these in these crazy economic times that we find ourselves here in in twenty twenty? You know, it's, there's not really a good comparison between because I, I don't anybody listening, I don't want people to say like we've done this before because we've never been quarantined into our homes. But I'll tell you my experience. My experience was that in Florida we had a lot of cases and it got pretty bad. You know, there was articles coming out that was like the gig economy is done forever, and you know a lot of people forget these things. We forget these things because time heals, right? All things, and it and it moves us into the next thing that we're doing, and we become adaptive to it, and we just kind of forget. But I was pulling on doors that were locked with, you know, in the on the tinted glass, you could kind of make a sign, you know, you make make a sign that you could see through the tinted glass and read, you know, appointment only, you know. Knock if, if you have an appointment, like go away if you're a salesperson. <laughs> you know, it was awkward because a couple of times in the beginning, people would come out and they would give you the eyes, like, what do you want? And everybody that's in field sales that's listening to this right now knows exactly how that feels. It's awkward. It's, it's, it's 
rough on you because it's you start to sit back and think, well, is this the right thing that I should be doing in the first place? Like everybody's a jerk right now, you know, and it, but it's not their fault. They're, we're in a situation where people are lost. They're confused. They don't know what's going on. Just like COVID-19, everybody wants to get back to normal, but nobody's allowed to in the first place, you know, and, and nobody wants to get sick at the same time too. Then that was really it is that we had to realize that people were protecting themselves. And so we had to, we had to become good stewards of their health as well. And so sitting back and understanding that because we couldn't do those things that we had to innovate. And when I say innovate, I don't mean pivot because a lot of people say, you know, pivot stupid. Well, I say some people can't pivot stupid, you know, <laughs> like there's a big picture perspective to that statement, you know, like the printing industry prints, you know, and sure, like we can sell software, but why would people be buying software right now in the middle of a pandemic, right? Now they, they will like from a SaaS perspective, yes. There's definitely some things out there that they need, you know, remote workers especially. But when you're thinking about the, what the, the products of the copier world was selling, especially in 2009, it was like, well, you still needed the scanner to get these things into a retention records management, you know, software in the first place. So there was too many, you know, again, there was too many variables that, to pivot, but innovating was important. And so people still needed a machine and people do right now. Our students that are in copier sales are slinging machines right now, slinging boxes like crazy. Because they've pivoted, they, instead of pivoted, they've innovated. They've innovated their outreach. And that's actually when we created the crumpled letter in the, the Rebel Letter campaign. Some of those direct mail pieces that I talked about, we would put them in bags that said sterile on them. And we would go in and, and we, would, we would deliver them to people. And like the, the coffee stain letter, you know, where we would you know, put an image of a coffee coaster on top of a, a letter and then tell people in the contents inside, you know, we both know that the sales and marketing that comes across your desk is better used as a coffee coaster. So I made you one you know, because it's garbage. It's crap. It sucks. And you don't like it in the first place. It bothers you. Right. And, and, and by creating familiarity and relevance inside of that innovation concept of outreach, we started to build credibility and trust and also cause a massive amount of curiosity because people started to say, I've never had this happen. I hate my sales guys, <laughs> you know, and like, I don't mean that every salesperson sucks, but what I, what I do believe is that everybody hates salespeople. I, I truly do. You know, we're, we, we do not, we're like relentless about the way that we feel about salespeople. You know, you, you talk to people in sales and they, they express that they hate salespeople. Right. I mean, it's, it's wild, dude. But the concept is, is that specifically is that if we can relate to somebody and be relevant in those situations and cause impact that we can change it. And so in COVID-19 right now, that's it. People are, are right now being bombarded with, with emails and being that say, I, I really hope you're okay. Yeah, I bet you do. Right. That's what everyone says when they really, yeah, I bet you do. Delete. My CEO wants to make sure that you know that we love you, you know, like, okay, well, where have you been the last eight years? Cause I've been with you for that long, you know? You know, there's this bigger picture perspective that the buyer sees, you know, and so becoming more experiential in your sales techniques and tactics using video, right? And there's some, dude, there is some crazy technology coming out right now that we've seen. We've innovated AR even inside of augmented reality inside of our outreach process. You know, people will take the time to go through that kind of stuff, especially imagine people sitting at home right now and not to say that they're not busy, but there's less stress. There's no water cooler talk. There's no, we got to get everything done before five o'clock. It's like, it's almost like I'm done. And now I'm getting more done. That's what's happening with a lot of companies. Twitter just said that you don't have to come back to work in 2021. <laughs> like, you're good if you want to work from home because they're so productive right now. So I think that more than anything, what people need to understand is that this is an opportunity for you to become a warrior. 
for you to, to brand yourself, for you to step outside of the box that, that people put sales professionals in and shine your light. Fantastic advice. Well, I'd, I'd like to jump into sales in 60 seconds. So quick questions and quick answers. First question, we've talked a lot about the, the things you should do when you're creating a sales playbook. What are some of the don'ts when you're creating a sales playbook? What should you avoid? A hundred percent would avoid putting anything in, in writing that's not flexible inside of a playbook. You should never put something that is, that is so written in stone that it can't be changed. Yeah. Uh, what is your opinion on the most, what, the most challenging part of creating a sales playbook? What takes the most thought and what's the hardest? I honestly, I think what's the hardest part is that is collaboration on it and, and, and deciding like what's right and what's wrong. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that you should get somebody else to come in and help you and your team write it together. Well, you know, it's only logical that, you know, as a sales leader, I've, I've written or participated in the writing of a, of, of a couple sales playbooks, but someone who's got expertise in it is, it's going to be way better if they've, they've been a part of the process a hundred times, they are, you know, you're going to get a better sales playbook. There's no doubt. Yeah. Plus they're on by They're not biased toward what you're doing at all. Yeah. So fresh of, the, the fresh set of eyes. Um, what, what is your favorite sales tool or app that you use on a regular basis? Am I supposed we, to say Badger Maps? Is that, is that where I said this part? That's, that, that's a perfect answer. We can move on. No, uh, that's my answer, but I, I, that would be clearly, <laughs> clearly biased. No, what's your, what's your, what is your favorite sales tool or app? Badger aside. Personally, LinkedIn is one of the greatest things that was ever created from a platform perspective. Uh, from a, and I believe it to be a tool, truly. I believe it to be inbound. I believe it to be outbound. It's, it has done wonders for me and my career. But, but I would say that a tool that I really like right now that is helping reps to get more, or be more productive, I should say, like, by, like going from like 70% productivity on these things to like 95 plus is gamification. And there's a company called Sales Screen that we endorse, the Sales Rebellion, that our clients are using. And it is literally changing the game for SDRs and BDRs all over the place and field sales reps as well, too. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll second the uh, the the vote for LinkedIn, and I'm I uh, I'm, I'm very interested in all the stuff that's coming out that Microsoft Dynamics has on the uh, on their roadmap now that they've purchased LinkedIn. Uh, I uh, I'd be I'd be nervous if I were Salesforce because they they <laughs> Microsoft can now do things that Salesforce cannot do because they own you know everyone in the world's information about everything about them. So every yep. customer and prospect out there, it's, it's really powerful stuff. So excited to see what comes out there in the next, you know, three to five years. And that, that's going to be interesting to see and, and maybe change, change how sales happens. And I obviously don't have a, a horse in that race, you know, between the, the 30 CRM systems that are floating around out there. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I'm, I, Badger, Badger's job is to work with all of them. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do over at Microsoft with, with LinkedIn. Agreed. Um, what are uh, what are the most important skills, in your opinion, that outside salespeople need to be really successful today? And how how has that been changing over the last decade? I think that communication skills are always going to be the most important, the single most important thing 
I think that you know there are good attributes that you could add to that as well too, like characteristics even. But I think communication is really what people should be focused on. Communication is is clutch inside of your outside sales walk to be able to walk in and read a room and then to be able to understand exactly how it is that you need to speak to these people, how much you need to be listening, um, and then how much you need to be interrupting yourself even inside of that listening process as well too. Because a lot of people like to be talked to as well. We don't, we don't mention that enough in the sales world. We don't mention that some people actually enjoy when you're telling stories or you're talking to them. But you know, again, it's this idea of gauging and understanding in communication, what should be said and what shouldn't. Tell me what's, uh, what's the best piece of sales advice that you've ever received in, in your career? The best piece of sales advice came from my father and it came from a quote. He gave me a, a painting when he sold the business, but it was a, a painting that had a quote on it that had been sitting in his office um, from the foundation of the organization. And, and he told me, he said, this is the single greatest thing that you can understand about your sales career is this quote. And it's pretty morbid too, but it, it says, bleach the bones of countless millions who on the verge of victory sat down to rest and while resting, they died. And I learned from that quote that one of the most important things in my sales career is momentum, my mindset as well too. That sitting back and understanding that if I sit down to rest because I've reached the top of my mountain per se, that I'm forgetting that there are 17 more out there that are waiting for me and I'll miss them if I do. Absolutely. As an actionable takeaway, what should field sales leaders listen today do as a first step to get started on creating a killer sales playbook? I think one of the first things they could do is just bring the reps in and talk to them about what's working and what's not. Hey guys and girls, what's working, what's not? What are your, what are some of the craziest things that have ever happened to you? What are some of your best success stories? You know, what are, what are things that you would never do again because of a failure specifically that you learned from and just interviewing their reps to understand better, maybe things that they, they, they heard kind of like half-assed, so to speak, you know, when, when it did go down and happen, but getting more granular detail around it and understanding, oh, well, it was because you sent the, the prospect 57 emails in the course of three weeks. That's probably why they, they booby trapped the appointment and, and basically kicked you out you know when you got there instead of giving you any time they were trying to waste your time back you know like <laughs> i digress the idea being that you know you've got to to understand what your reps are going through first and foremost and what it is that their experiences look like in order to be able to teach the ones coming in and the future generations that will be there at some point as well too well i'm going to attempt to summarize all the things you've taught us today here dale um so first off your sales process needs to complement your customer. Build a system to help you be patient with the buyer and meet, the, meet your buyer, your customer, where they're at instead of just focusing on your commission. Don't get commission breath, so to speak. Um, a sales playbook starts with writing down what works for you as a sales leader and putting it together in a way that's customized for your team. You want to create buyer personas, and the way you do that is you interview the marketplace about your solution and ask, ask the people for feedback. Um, you know, really get to know this buyer and think about 
the buyers that you have had on the list on your, you know, you, your uh, ideal customer profile list, think about if, if they're the ones that should be there and think about who's not there and ask yourself why. And in these wild times, ask yourself if that, if, if that list should be changing around a little bit. Try mindset scripts to avoid a stale sales script. So sales is about timing. Follow scripts and that follow the scripts that target where the prospect is at that given time and be in the right mindset as opposed to having, you know, a paragraph memorized. If they, if they currently aren't experiencing issues that relate to your solution, that means you're going to have to shift how you approach your prospect and help them get to a, a point where they feel a sense of urgency that they'd want to purchase your product. It's important to document the journey that you take with buyers and teach yourself to be proactive instead of reactive by having that information. So when something goes wrong, you can document it, you can know to avoid it in the future, and you can transfer this knowledge to the rest of your team. That's a, a key thing you can do in, uh, in these documents that we're, that we're creating here, these playbooks. It's really important to continue to revisit your sales playbook to make changes each month and every year so that you can keep it up to date. I think it's important to let your salespeople suggest or even make direct changes themselves. As salespeople, it's important to keep innovating parts of your sales process so that you can stay relevant to your buyers, especially in times of change. Culture plays a really big role in getting a sales team to read and engage with and follow the sales playbook. So you want to build a culture to help your team get on board with a centralized playbook because they believe that it'll help them sell. As a salesperson, it's really important to be open with your feelings and find someone to talk with regularly. Um, sales leaders should encourage reps to be open and to speak with, with, with people um, in order to both help them grow as individuals and within their career. Um, Dale, this has been fantastic. I, I really appreciate the candor and, uh, and all that you've spoken about here. Tell me, where can listeners read more about your work? How, how, what's the best way to reach out to you if, if people, if people want to go deeper? And the best way is to go to salesrebellion.com and click the about page. My email and cell phone number is there, but people can can head to linkedin.com backslash IN backslash copier warrior, find my content feed. I post daily content. Anybody that wants to come and gain that, their, uh, uh, find that gained aptitude that we talked about and get some more knowledge on sales. I'm on every social platform, by the way, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, like literally every single one. And if you just Google Dale Dupree, you'll find a ton of stuff about me, my journey, and things that can bring value to you and your reps. Awesome. Well, this has been a great episode of the Outside Sales Talk. Um, really appreciate uh, what you've spoken about, Dale. Uh, if, if, uh, if anyone listening can think of other sales reps who they feel would benefit from the different things that Dale's been talking about here today, definitely share the love and, and forward this on to them. Uh, Dale, thanks for coming and take care until next time, everybody.